So as I said, um, in looking at Wilberforce and his life, um, I've discovered over the past week or so since we decided to do this that his impact was really far more wide-reaching than just the abolition of the slave trade, great though that clearly was, and, and, and that's what he'll be remembered for, that was his life's work. Um, and his Christian faith was at least as inspirational as a William Carey or a Hudson Taylor or, or, or pick your favourite missionary or preacher. Enormously inspirational as, as you read about it and, and perhaps something that's glossed over in, uh, in, in the um, largely secular stories that you hear sometimes about the abolition of the slave trade. So, who was William Wilberforce? What can we learn from his life and example, his achievements 200 years later now? And, and I guess the question might be in your mind, uh, as, as it was in mine, surely things are very different now. And so to answer that, we need to start at the beginning. And Wilberforce was born in 1759 into a society which actually, in some respects, was not very different from our own. Let me just talk a little bit about it. It was a society, first of all, full of some of the cleverest and most talented of men and women. You're talking about uh, playwrights like uh, Oliver Goldsmith and Sheridan. You're talking about artists like Joshua Reynolds and Gainsborough. Uh, you're talking about great politicians like uh, William Pitt, philosophers uh, like Edmund Burke, economists like Adam Smith, who appears on the £20 note just recently, The Wealth of Nations. All these are people that, that, that we still hear about and talk about today who are enormously influential in, even on our own time. And yet, the standards of moral behaviour were at their lowest. And, and above all, in, in reading about this, what you pick up is just the heartlessness of society. The people at the head of society, and obviously there was a huge gap between rich and poor then, um, were just not interested in the fate of the ordinary person. And above all, they just live for themselves. And a, a quote, uh, the rich live in a state of selfish, pagan hedonism. Does that ring any bells? Does that sound familiar? Except, of course, we're all rich now, relatively speaking, or, or, or many of us. The society was built on slavery, as we know, but also on, on child labour, children working up to 16 hours a day, a uh, huge gap between rich and poor, poor, and a huge political corruption. So if you wanted a uh, seat in Parliament, all you had to do was to buy it. And the reason that the slave uh, faction was so influential was they could buy some of the choicest seats, put their own MPs into Parliament. Uh, no really democracy worth speaking of uh, operating at that time. The theatre uh, had become a place um, of, of real corruption. Um, somebody said, no sooner is a playhouse opened than it at once becomes surrounded by a halo of brothels. Interesting juxtaposition of ideas there, a halo of brothels. But anyway, uh, clearly not a good, not a good thing. Uh, drunkenness was rife. Uh, somebody said, statesmen sailed on a sea of claret while the poor floundered in an ocean of gin. Um, and, I mean, it, it's, it was serious. At one point in London, one-eighth of all deaths were attributed to excessive drinking of spirits. Does that ring any bells, bells today from what we hear on our news? Um, there was no regular police force to keep uh, law and order. In fact, Robert Peel's bobbies were about 40 years away. Um, there were 200 offences for which you could have the death penalty. And even sometimes uh, women and children as young as seven could be sentenced to death for some of these offences. And, and establish a religion was no help. The church was, was completely, or at least the, the, you know, the majority of the Anglican church, was completely corrupt. Um, 7,000 out of 11,000 clergy did not actually live in or minister regularly to their parishes. 
They just got somebody else in to do it at a fraction of the wage. And this, of course, was in a day when the parish came with all of the tithes from that parish, so you could get a comfortable living from some of the big country parishes. And those of you who've read Jane Austen who watch Pride and Prejudice or remember uh, Mr. Collins, uh, for example, um, some of those pictures of the Anglican clergyman of those times. Austen was a direct contemporary of, uh, of Wilberforce. Uh, one son of the Archbishop of Canterbury received 12000 per year for 50 years, which is, which is not bad, actually, is it, really, um, for, from church appointments, where at the same time, 4,000 English clergy were paid less than £150 per year. And this was the Archbishop of Canterbury getting actually one of his five sons, all of them, had a, uh, a sinecure job like that. And this was the same Archbishop that uh, Wilberforce had to deal with, so not a lot of help there. There were signs of hope, though. Um, you'll have heard of John Wesley, his brother Charles Wesley, obviously the great hymn writer, and also George Whitfield, who was another hugely influential evangelist of that time. And from the 1740s, working through into the end of the century, they had begun through their preaching and, and traveling and preaching to huge great crowds, uh, both in this country and Whitfield, also in America. Um, they'd made a huge impact, starting really with the lower classes, but working up into the, uh, into the middle classes, and we'll see some of that as we look at the uh, life of George Whitfield, uh, of um, Wilberforce, uh, the influence of Whitfield in his life. But still a long, long way to go. So, you know, no religion, uh, a pagan hedon- hedonism, uh, a formalism, uh, lots of things that I think we can identify with. You know, this wasn't some great and glorious uh, day that, uh, you know, where the church was uh, preaching the gospel and all was right with the world. Very, very far from it. So what about uh, Wilberforce himself? Well, he came from a family of merchants and bankers, and, and when he was nine, his father died. Uh, this was up in Hull, uh, in Kingston on Hull in uh, Yorkshire, and he moved down to London. Now, his uncle and aunt had been uh, converted through the ministry of this same George Whitfield, and uh, William Wilberforce Jr. heard the sermons preached in Clapham, where uh, uh, his uncle and aunt lived, including those of John Newton, uh, we talked about earlier. And, in fact, Newton almost became like a father figure to him. And he was seriously impressed, deeply affected, and and, um, started to develop uh, distinct Methodist leanings. Well, in those days, the Methodists were not a denomination like they were today. They were basically a group of people like Wesley's, like Whitfield, who took their religion seriously, who took Christianity seriously, who were truly converted in a church that was full of nominalism, as we've seen. And they were derided by the uh, upper and middle classes. They were derided by the bishops. In fact, I think, uh, I, think I read from ni- um, 1740 to 1780, no single year went past without some bishop deriding the work of Wesley and Whitfield. In fact, so much so, they had to do most of their preaching in the open air because they weren't allowed in the churches. Um, Anyway, so uh, Wilberforce wrote later, My mother, hearing I had become a Methodist, came down to London to ascertain the fact, and finding it true, took me down to Hull, almost heartbroken. No pious parent ever laboured more to impress a beloved child with sentiments of piety than they did to give me a taste of the world and its diversions. So they were very uh, unkeen on Wilberforce uh, uh, being saved and becoming a Christian. So the Christian influence waned, Wilberforce enjoyed his parties, he enjoyed the uh, social life up there in Hull, and eventually uh, went on to St John's College, Cambridge, where he did pretty much nothing at all. In fact, he described his uh, uh, three years there as living a life of sober dissipation, 
which I suppose is better than drunken dissipation, which I suspect is what a lot of his contemporaries were doing at the time. In fact, William Pitt and, and, and many others were there too, uh, including Thomas Clarkson, who you'll remember from Clarkson Street and also remember was one of the great campaigners uh, in the early days of the abolition of the slave trade. Um, in fact, uh, lived in Playford Hall, not uh, far from here, and died, died here. So he graduated from Cambridge in 1780, took his seat as a member for Hull uh, in the Commons, and three years later, the government, uh, as it was then, fell. William Pitt became the youngest Prime Minister uh, in English history at the age of only 24, and Wilberforce became the MP for Yorkshire, which at that time was a, had, I think, two MPs, and it was hugely influential. Uh, in terms of um, his influence in Parliament having that seat. So, 1785, Wilberforce was unassailable, member for Yorkshire, all the right connections, the best friend of William Pitt, um, high position in politics and society, and the future was very, very bright for him. But 1785 also marked a turning point for Wilberforce. He travelled through Europe uh, with the brother of um, the headmaster, of Wilberforce's old school in Hull, who himself was an evangelical. And talking to this guy, Isaac Milner, who was later to become a great uh, academic, um, he became intellectually convinced, and then gradually that intellectual ascent developed into a deep inner conviction of the truth of Christianity. And I was reminded, if you've read the story of the conversion of C.S. Lewis, he argued himself into the kingdom, and then it, it went down into his heart. And this is clearly what happened to Wilberforce. At the same time, he was really overcome with uh, spiritual anguish. And again, this is something that, that we read again and again in the conversion stories. It wasn't an easy progress for Wilberforce. He recognised his sin. And he recognised the fact that he'd wasted a lot of his life up to that point. And he said, um, it was not so much the fear of punishment by which I was affected as a sense of my great sinfulness in having so long neglected the unspeakable mercies of my God and Saviour. And clearly, the works that he was reading, the people he was talking to, and, and God himself working in his life was having a huge effect. So throughout this searching, Wilberforce became convinced of a number of things. First of all, that he should speak to some of his, some of his friends, that he should go and speak to William Pitt, uh, who was the Prime Minister, and, and explain to him what was happening, because I think he felt that perhaps he wouldn't be able to be the party man supporting William Pitt all the time. His conscience would have a greater say in how he uh, voted and how he acted in Parliament. But he also felt he should go and see uh, John Newton, who had moved from Olney to uh, Woolnoth in the city of London, actually just near the Bank of England. And, and as I've said, evangelicals at that, that time, of which John Newton was one, were hugely despised by the classes in which Wilberforce moved. And to go and consort with an evangelical, or be seen to be consorting with a Methodist, was... Something which actually, I mean, you can make a joke of it, but it would have seriously affected Wilberforce's social standing. Sure, he would have got chucked out of Parliament. Nobody would have voted for him again if he'd have been uh, un understood to be like that. So he really struggled with that for a number of days. And then he realised that to make Jesus fully Lord of his whole life, he needed to go through with what he really felt God was telling him to do. And he might lose his friends, he might lose his popularity, his political and social status, and his ambitions to be something great in Parliament. So he arranged a rather convoluted secret meeting with John Newton, it has to be said. I guess he was still struggling a little bit with his reputation at that point. And Newton counselled Wilberforce very, very wisely not to divide himself from his old friends. He said, the Lord raised you up for the good of the church 
and for the good of the nation. And I think that's great, isn't it? Wilberforce was prepared to give all of that up. He clearly struggled with that, and yet through the advice of friends, he saw that actually God had chosen him to be in the position that he was in. His friends that he had, he could use as a positive influence. And and I think he, he said later, if he had not been taken away from Methodism and then brought back, he might have become some pious tract-writing non-entity, <laughs> whereas because of the way God moved in his life, um, he retained that social status and was able to use that to great effect. At the same time, because he'd struggled with this, his reputation became of little interest to him, and that freed him up then to go with his conscience above all things in, in the work that he did, because he didn't really care at the end of the day what people thought of him. Um, and in fact, uh, next year, Wilberforce was writing in his journal, expect to hear myself us- universally given out as a Methodist. Uh, may God grant that it may be said with truth. So um, he was obviously not caring anymore. So as I say, as it turned out, God was not calling Wilberforce to abandon his friends or his status or his calling. But as so often, he needed to be willing to surrender them to God and to lay, the down, lay them down and to put his politics, connections, friends and social standing at God's disposal. And you could say that it was this decision that was to give Wilberforce that mature balance between the private and the public, between private holiness and yet a care and concern for the world in social action, which Jesus showed in his life, and yet so often missed. And and, and we'll we'll find out more about how that works out through uh, Wilberforce's life. So... Um, I guess now is a good time perhaps for us to sing again and that great uh, song of conversion from John Newton, How Sweet the Name of Jesus Sounds in a Believer's uh, believer's Ear, and then we'll go and find out a little bit more about how Wilberforce's conversion had an effect on his whole life. So I think we can't underestimate the importance of Wilberforce's conversion there and the struggles that he had, although they didn't take a great deal of time over the space of probably just about a year. But I think they laid the foundations for all that was to come. And it's interesting, uh, Margaret was mentioning earlier, there's a, uh, an interesting biography, which I haven't had a chance to read yet, because I only got it on Thursday, and it's quite fat, um, of um, William Wilberforce by William Hague, of course, who was the uh, Tory leader and um, now Shadow Foreign Secretary. Uh, who'd also written a biography a few years ago, William Pitt, uh, Wilberforce's exact contemporary. And he was on the radio this week, and as is the, often the case on Radio 4, they sort of like to poo-poo, you know, genuine religious experience a little bit, don't they? And Haig, bless him, um, he said, well, you know, you can say what you like. He said, I'm not an evangelical, but he said, this was clearly the driving force behind everything that Wilberforce did. And you know, look what he achieved. He said, don't, don't knock it. I th- he sort of put the, um, I think it was on Radio 3 where I heard it, where they have a tendency to be even slightly more um, <laughs> derogatory even than, or condescending even than they do on Radio 4. So uh, that was nice to hear. So 1785 was the year of crisis for Wilberforce, and 1786 was a year of waiting, uh, as is often the case. Wilberforce really sought to find out what God wanted him to do. And he started to modify his behaviour. He avoided some of the former race meetings and balls and dinners where lots of vast, vast amounts of food and wine were consumed. Resigned from some of his London clubs that uh, were sort of basically gambling and drinking houses and little else. Um, although, having said that, his life was far from grim. He did struggle over his conversion. Um, but 
after that, really, his life became far more serene and tranquil and composed than before. And in fact, his mother was pleasantly surprised by his cheerfulness uh, and uh, the disappearance of his quick temper and said, um, if this is madness, I hope he will bite us all. So um, that's nice to see, isn't it, that he didn't just disappear into uh, a trough of legalism, if you will, but his former um, self was still there, and God was using it, rather, to win others for him. So what were some of the key things? Uh, as, As he sought to see what God wanted him to do, he really developed this strong sense of purpose. And in doing that, it was interesting listening to Simon this morning. He did all of those things that, that, that Simon talked about, which I'm now not going to get in the right order, so please don't check afterwards. But he sought God in prayer, um, and he sought God in the Word, and that, that's clear. Uh, but he also sought God in his many, many friends. And as he sought to live the life God had called him to, he discussed with his friends, both Christian and indeed non-Christian, people like William Pitt, it became clear to him what his life's work should be. And he said, and this is, this is really the key quote, God Almighty has set before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners. Manners? Okay, this didn't mean that you shouldn't eat with your mouth full or uh, anything like that. Uh, What he was looking at was the 18th century definition of that term, basically the reformation of morality, the return to morality, and we saw earlier just just what uh, kind of society it was. And uh, one of his biographers commented how these two things were so intimately related. On the one hand, it would take a profound moral reformation in leaders and people to obtain the suppression of so cherished a a trade, i.e. the slave trade. On the the other, only an unselfish battle like the abolition of the slave trade would demonstrate to God and the world that such a moral reformation was genuine. Without this emphasis on people's hearts being changed, there was no way that Wilberforce and his friends would have been able to get this abolition of the slave trade through, certainly not at the time when it went through in, in, in the early 19th century there. Um, and I think that's important, is it? We look so much at society and we think what can be done. And uh, I read a quote which you may have heard of, obviously, which is that politics is the art of the possible. And yet for Wilberforce, politics was the art of what God could do which sometimes seemed to be impossible. In the case of the abolition of the slave trade, I think to many people it was felt to be impossible. And in fact, it took him 20 years, as we know, uh, from this decision in 1787 till uh, 1807, when the trade was finally abolished. So, looking at Wilberforce's life then, we have this sense of purpose that he developed through this conversion, through this uh, deep and profound understanding of, of God and, and, and of submission to his will. And, and it's very impressive if you look at Wilberforce's sen- sense of purpose. It took 20 years and almost annual defeats in the Commons uh, before the bill to abolish the slave trade was passed. And yet all through that, Wilberforce worked hard. He worked as hard as he could. Uh, in fact, uh, really made himself ill in many respects by by working as hard as he did. And yet at the same time, he could leave all of the results of what was happening in God's hands. So what was it that underpinned this? Um, what What were his daily habits? What were the things in his life that enabled him to drive this through with such a sense of 
purpose and perseverance. Um, I'll pick out a few things, and some of them begin with P, but not all of them, which is a bit disappointing. But anyway, there we are. I think the first thing was his personal self-denial, and we've seen a little bit about that decision of obedience that caused him to go and uh, talk to Newton, uh, which caused him to say he was happy to abandon his friends and his position if that was what God was calling him to do. And that was, as I've said, allowed something that allowed Wilberforce to take so little account of what others thought of him, that allowed him to drive some of these things through. Um, later, when it looked possible that Wilberforce could gain a seat in William Pitt's cabinet, um, William took his normal Sunday off, as he always did, very, very rarely worked on a Sunday, except possibly at the height of the slave trade abolition campaign. And he said, a Sunday of prayer and reflection brought the cure to rising ambition. And unless we think that, that this is sort of something that would never have happened, the great historian G.M. Trevelyan wrote, Wilberforce could probably have been Pitt's successor as Prime Minister if he had preferred party to mankind. So if he'd have gone along with the party line, sought to do Pitt's bidding in the House at all times, he could have been the Prime Minister. But he essentially gave that up. And, you know, perhaps... Who can, who can name the uh, British Prime Ministers of the 18th and 19th century in this room? Uh, okay, not me, <laughs> but we all know who William Wilberforce was, and isn't that sometimes what God does? By renouncing something which we might think is very dear to our hearts, we have a much stronger and lasting legacy. Um, another thing which was key in, in Wilberforce's life was his personal prayer, and that really started at the beginning when he was seeking God. He established this habit of early rising and spending time with God each morning, and he said this, in the calmness of the morning before the mind is heated and weary, by the turmoil of the day, you have a season of unusual importance for communing with God and with yourself. It's that listening to God that we were hearing about this morning. And, and he said to a, uh, a very busy man, he said, I've always found that I have the most time for business and it is best done when I have most properly observed my private devotions. And, and someone else said, and I Somebody said it was Francis de Sales, but I thought it was Martin Luther. Anyway, whoever it was said, half an hour's daily listening to God is essential, except when you are very busy. Then a full hour is needed. And I, I don't know about you, but I've certainly found that true in my life. I just wish I paid more attention to it more often. But sometimes when we are very busy, that time with God is just so important. And again, as I've said, Wilberforce always kept Sunday as a day of rest too, as far as he possibly could. And that certainly uh, helped him to keep a sense of perspective when he could have got carried away with so much that was going on. Another key thing for him was um, depending on the power of God. John Wesley said to him, unless God has raised you up for this very thing, i.e. the abolition of the slave trade, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God is with you, who can be against you? Uh, that kept him going through those 20 years, I'm sure. And when the bill was eventually passed by 1807, it was a thumping majority, 283 votes to 16. And, and he said this, I cannot account for the fervour which happily now has taken the place of that fastidious, well-bred lukewarmness. What sarcasm in those words, yes? Fastidious, well-bred lukewarmness, which used to display itself on this subject. He can't account for it, he says, except by supposing it to be provided by the almighty power which can influence at will the judgment and the feelings and actions of men. So Wilberforce clearly believed in God's power in these large things, but he also believed in God's power and guidance in small things. He said there is no great or little to God. 
Uh, and again, that drove him both through the slavery but through the many things as well. Now, some of you will have heard about the, the Clapham Circle, I think it was called in the film. Uh, other people used to call it the Clapham Sect. Um, this group of individuals that Wilberforce gathered around him down in Clapham in South London. Uh, at the time, they were called the Saints, and um, very, very influential people they were. And I think perhaps one of the reasons for Wilberforce's astonishing persistence and steadiness in his work was that he never actually worked alone. So this community at Clapham were an informal body of friends who, who lived as a community in three houses all around a central garden um, in, uh, just on Clapham Common there. And it was informal, but it was also well thought out, um, as with much of what Wilberforce did. And it had basically the twin aims of a deeper personal commitment, so each person encouraging the other in their Christian life, but also to have a greater influence on political affairs, and some of the people who were involved in it, um, a guy called Henry Thornton owned the main house at the centre of this. He was an MP for Southwark, and, and in fact, um, amazingly enough, he won his seat with no corruption and no bribery at all, which for those days was pretty spectacular. Um, there was an old friend, um, Edward Elliot, who had had a hugely promiscuous uh, youth, uh, but then became a Christian, uh, and he was an MP as well. Um, another guy, Charles Grant, was an entrepreneur, returned from India. He was another MP and a director of the East India Company, and the East India Company in those days was the company that was set up basically to administer uh, India uh, at that time. Um, there was a guy called Granville Sharp who um, had, uh, was a lawyer and had previously forced the Lord Chief Justice to rule that keeping slaves in England was illegal, which was quite clever of him. Um, a guy called Zachary Macaulay. Some of you have might have heard of the Macaulay, the historian. I think this might have been his father. Um, he was a slave overseer and a state manager before his conversion. Another guy was the retired Governor General of uh, India. And then lots of other people uh, visited. The local vicar was a guy called John Venn, who was the son of one of the pioneers of uh, evangelicalism uh, in the Anglican Church. Um, there was a guy called Charles Simeon who used to visit, who was vicar of Holy Trinity Cambridge, and, and immensely influential uh, evangelical of his time. In fact, even today there are churches, quite a lot of churches, uh, which are administered by something called the Simeon Trust, which seeks to make sure that vicars are evangelical when they get put into those churches, and that exists today. Um, enormous uh, influence, then, th these, these people that are surrounding. And I was trying to think of an example of, of, of today, and I'm not sure there is one, but uh, Holy Trinity Brompton's the closest I can get to it, in, in that there's a church which has enormous influence, uh, both uh, worldwide, but also uh, amongst fairly influential people in government and, and in the city and whatever. Uh, but somebody said this, no prime minister had such a cabinet as Wilberforce could summon to his assistance. And, and that was key for him in being able to do what he did. And, and these people were amazing. They had a common commitment. They had an accountability relationship. How many times have we heard that? We think that's a modern invention, don't we? Accountability relationships? No, not at all. These people learnt from each other. They respected each other while feeling free to help each other overcome their various defects of character or temperament. And they frequently pointed them out without pulling any punches, as far as I can see. And each was pledged not only to the great causes which they undertook together, but also to help their friends attain the character and the destiny which God had uh, revealed for them. And unless you think it was all a bit of a pious sort of community where they all went saying, bless your brother, and, and how was your quiet time this morning? It, it, it seems to me they had enormous fun. And uh, certainly from everything you read, blissfully happy family lives. These were not people who didn't know how to enjoy themselves, didn't know to have fun. 
uh, but they, they had it all centered in, in, in the Lord Jesus. And, and uh, probably another very significant quotation from John Pollock, who's one of Wilberforce's biographers. Wilberforce proved that one man can change his times, but he cannot do it alone. Uh, I think sometimes as we seek to do the work that God's called us to, we have to recognize that God doesn't necessarily call us, rarely, I suspect, calls us to do it alone. Well, we're almost out of time. I've only got another 27 pages here, but two other, two other things very quickly. Um, there was an enormous commitment from Wilberforce to personal evangelism. We think of his campaigning uh, character, and I mean, just to go on that for a moment, apart from abolishing the slave trade, slavery itself was abolished in 1833, which I think was just before he died. Um, he founded the Church Missionary Society, or he and his friends of the Clapham sect. Um, he founded the British and Foreign Bible Society, now, now the Bible Society, and I think, Claire, you were saying 37 other charities. 69. 69, okay, whatever, a lot. 69 other charities. He campaigned against gambling laws, conditions in factories, conditions in mines, um, child uh, chimney sweeps. He campaigned against the fact that uh, you weren't allowed to send missionaries to India. The charter of the East India Company specifically forbade missionaries operating. In fact, William Carey initially had to operate under the auspices of the Danes, uh, Danish. Uh, he wasn't allowed to operate in, in um, English areas. Uh, and you could say that the whole rise of evangelicalism, the whole change in society that took place was due to Wilberforce and, and, and his, um, his circle. Um, and through that, there was a huge commitment to personal evangelism. He wrote a, a, a book called, uh, this is a little nifty title here, I'm sure you'd buy this if you saw it in the bookshop, A Practical View of the Prevailing Religious System of Professed Christians in the Higher and Middle Classes in the Country Contrasted with Real Christianity. <laughs> nifty little title there. But, nevertheless, it went into 15 editions, uh, in England, 25 in America, and was translated into quite a few foreign languages. And basically he was saying, look guys, you've got to take your faith seriously. Uh, an enormous call to, uh, uh, to a serious return to a real Christian faith. Uh, another thing I read which I thought was rather good, he, he, um, he had a friend's paper which was marked to be looked at each Sunday, where he'd marked next to a listing of 30 of his friends thoughts about how he could best help them to take the next step to discover Christ. You see, none of this is new, is it? It's amazing when you read this. And um, even uh, the other thing he used to think about, before he went to a dinner party, he would think of things that he called launchers, topics which would naturally lead on to a deeper conversation. And he even tried this with the Prince Regent, and those of you who know anything about 18th century history, he built the Brighton Pavilion. He was not renowned for his good behaviour. Um, and, and he even had a go at the Prince Regent, which I thought was quite impressive. And um, one French woman came over to visit him and said, I've always heard that he's the most religious, but I now know that he's the wittiest man in England. So this was a man who used his charm, his personality, to great effect uh, in, in seeking to uh, evangelise his friends. And I think, uh, you know, apart from this change in society, which he worked very, very hard to achieve as well, um, there was enormous commitment to principles. And I, I, I just, I love this. He said, this is his speech to the House of Commons about abolishing, uh, abolishing the slave trade. I have proved, particularly to West India planters, that the 
abolition is politic. In other words, it was sensible, it's expedient, it's a sensible thing to do, it you know, makes sense economically, all those arguments. However, sir, policy is not my principle, and I'm not ashamed to say it. There is a principle about everything that is, uh, and when I reflect, sorry, there is, a about our, uh, there is a principle about everything that is politic, and when I reflect on the command which says, thou shalt do no murder, he said, I have to stick with my principles. And he said, uh, this was deleted from his biography uh, just after his death, because they thought it was a bit um, uh, contentious. If I thought that the immediate abolition of the slave trade would cause an insurrection in our islands, I should not for an instant remit my most serious endeavours. So he didn't care what the impact was. He knew it was the right thing to do. And isn't that great? We, you know, we need people like that, don't we? So, um, I've gone on for too long. Uh, we talked a little bit about his legacy. We haven't talked so much about the change that was affected in society through the work that he did. He got the king to issue a proclamation for the encouragement of piety and virtue and the preventing of vice, profaneness, and immorality, which sounds like it would have achieved absolutely nothing at all. But backed by prayer, backed by the Clapham sect, um, ten years later, churches were filling with new worshippers, absentee vicars were replaced with uh, real evangelicals, and the whole foundation of, of evangelicalism in this country, which we see down to this day, um, and the whole character of the 19th century Englishman really was established by what Wilberforce did. So, in summary, what was it? It was Wilberforce's godly, disciplined life, his sense of calling and obedience to that calling, his reliance on prayer and the advice from godly friends, his confidence in the power and purposes of God. All of those things mean we're still talking about him uh, 200 years later. And we might not be William Wilberforce, but we all have at our disposal access to the same God and the ability to follow the same examples he did. We've seen how contemporary some of the things that he did was. And as I said, Wilberforce proved that uh, one man can change his times, uh, but he can't do it alone. And we have all of the same access to all of the same means as Wilberforce did to change our times. So we're going to sing a hymn as we move forward. Um, a hymn by William Cowper, or Cooper, one or the other. Um, God moves in a mysterious way. And I think if we look at Wilberforce's life, we'll see that some of the things that happened seemed a bit mysterious sometimes. But uh, underneath all of that was God's guiding hand. <laughs>